Matthew chapter 6. Have you ever had one of those mornings? I have this morning as I was sitting up front. You may, some of you may have noticed I left because my glasses fell apart. So I ran to my office and I have a pair of cheaters which definitely give me the grandparent look. And I'm not used to using them, so I, pray, I, I immediately apologize for how, if I get a little lost once in a while. But as I was back there, I realized I also had a clothing malfunction going on, so I had to stop and fix. I was so hoping that Brad would stretch out the worship sessions because I, you know, will I get back in time or will Brad just keep going? Same chorus, four more times. You know, we take so much for granted, don't we? Things become common to us. Be it your glasses sticking together, be it your clothing working when it's supposed to. I remember 40 years ago, I was a junior high student. And for our younger ones in the audience, no, I did not ride a dinosaur to school. I did not personally know George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Elmer did, but I didn't. <laughs> but 40 years ago in my school, a country school, every morning it was the same. You got there. The bell rang. You stood up in unison. You put your hand over your heart and you began to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now our principal was Mr. Johnston. Now there was a bad thing about Mr. Johnston. He also went to the same church I went to and my dad worked for him. So my dad had a rule, Greg, you ever get called to the office? I will know. And you will hear from me when I get home. Oh, so I was always scared of Mr. Johnson, but he was the nicest man unless you went to the office. And Mr. Johnston got up and he would, he would get on the intercom and so he would say the pledge and then he would give any special announcements. What I remember was this was later in the year. And Mr. Johnston must have been talking with the teachers. He had gone to a few of the classes and just stood in the back during the pledge. And he noticed that the pledge had kind of lost its luster, especially for those of us in junior high. It was, let's see how fast we can say it. Let's just, let's just get through it. It's just some words. And so you would get a Bible, you know, we would have contests. How fast can you get through the pledge? Unless our teacher stepped in and said, stop it. You know, we, we would just do it. So Mr. Johnston comes on the intercom. He said, students, I sense that you've lost your, your love of the pledge. I, I sense that it doesn't mean anything to you. I'd like to pause this morning and do something a little bit different. I want to read to you 
from a person by the name of Red Skelton and what he had to say. Well, we all sat up because at way back then, Red Skelton was an entertainer. He was a comedian. He was funny. So we expected him to be funny. And so he started to read. And Red reads about when he was a student. And, 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 and Red tells the story of how his principal came out and said, Gentlemen, I sense that you don't understand what you're saying. Let me explain it to you. And he took them through the pledge. I, me, an individual, a, a party of one, pledge, commit myself to. And he walks us through this amazing pledge and what the words mean. I will never forget that. That has been 40 years. And I still remember. And every time I think of the pledge, I have to pause. Now I'm very thankful for YouTube because uh, Red Skelton's talk is found on YouTube. So every now and then I, I turn it on just to remind myself. But you see, what had been so special and what had been so treasured had become so generic, so ordinary, so common, and so too often the Lord's Prayer. We do it by rote. We just begin to, to say the words, and uh, until recently, even our, our culture had adopted the Lord's Prayer for itself, and so it became a generic, safe prayer. So this morning, we're going to go through a few more of the words. We're going to walk slowly through them. As we walk, I want you to savor each word we taste. I want it to come into you as that this is not a safe prayer. It is not a prayer that I can take lightly. In fact, I should quiver and be frightened when I pray this prayer if I understand what I'm saying. For I'm not playing games with God if I pray this prayer. I'm always drawn back to C.S. Lewis, and I know I've shared this illustration before, but, but this prayer exemplifies it. Lucy's talking about Aslan, the great lion of C.S. Lewis's books, and she turns to Mr. Beaver and she says, Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver laughs, oh no, 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 he, he's not safe, he's a lion. But he is good. Yes, yes, he is good. Is this prayer safe? No. But is he good? Yes. We started with, that mind-blowing thought that He is our Father. What does that mean? That the God of heaven is our Father. We began to walk through and unpack and how it's, He's our Father in heaven. He's not held captive, as it were to the frailties of the mortal dads. 
that he initiates and creates and chooses us for a relationship that only he as father could do. We come to him and access him in intimacy and in unity and in relationship in a way that the universe cannot understand. And then we saw that he is holy and everything about him is holy and that we are called to treat his name as holy, as uncommon, as special, as set apart, that we are to orient our lives to sanctifying or making holy his name. And, and may I take a moment from the sermon and make a cultural comment. I say this very carefully. You notice I, I, I don't do that this a lot, but I need to make a cultural comment here. I want you to prayerfully chew on what does it mean to call His name holy because our culture has called His name common. Donna and I and a couple uh, in, in about a month, they're going to go to Lake Tahoe. It's our favorite place in the whole world. We're going to be gone for two weeks, but you are going to be in such great hands. We have this guy named Jeremy Deck who is a dear friend and a powerful speaker who will be here for those two weeks. In fact, you may not want me back after you hear him for two weeks. And if he sends me an email, don't come. They called me. See ya. That'll be okay. But, oh. We treat the name as common. And, and w when we were at the lake, it's amazing how many locals we talked to have stopped looking at this beautiful lake because they see it every day. It loses its meaning. And we have lost the meaning of the name of God. Be careful. God's name is not meant to be part of our profanity. It's not to be meant to be part of our damnation of things. God's name is not meant to be part of our tweets, our OMGs, or our exclamations of, oh God, or oh Jesus, when something doesn't go the way we want, or something goes the way we want, and we're so excited. It, it's, it's not meant to be used that way. That's my opinion here, folks. And I'm not trying to force that on you. I'm going to ask that you prayerfully consider that in your prayer time and see if the Holy Spirit would like you to join me on trying to treat God's name as too holy to say OMG. Back to the sermon. Notice that the praise and adoration from these two phrases, our Father who is heaven, holy is your name, becomes the platform for the most radical portion of this prayer. This next part, if it's fully understood in its context, it will be subversive to every kingdom on earth. In fact, the early Christians in Rome were persecuted because of this prayer. Because they prayed this prayer while they honored Caesar, they were persecuted because they would not give their allegiance to Caesar because this prayer calls for allegiance to another. Your kingdom come. This is an imperative. 
It is a command. It's the second command we've discovered in this prayer. It's the first was to treat his name as holy. And this implies that he is a king and he has a kingdom. Kings don't do very well in our culture, do they? We have moved from monarchies, the the rule of one, to democracy, the rule of many. Today, most kings are constitutional monarchs, which simply means they have no power. They have no authority. They are to open parliament. They are to have their face on currency and stamps and maybe be at a supermarket opening. That's about it. Kings have no power today. But that's not what he's referring to. When we say our kingdom come is what we want to pray. But we are called to pray your kingdom come. But it rubs us the wrong way. Why should someone have power over simply because of their birth? Why should they have power and privilege because of what family they were born to? They didn't earn it. So doesn't that sum up in many ways what we get in Christ? We're born into his family and through nothing we bring in, through nothing we've done, he chooses us and blesses us with the position of being a child, a child of the king. But that's a whole other sermon. No, in our hearts we want to be like a fiddler on the roof. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof, Teddy? He had a prayer for the czar, the king of his land. God, bless the czar and keep him far, far away. Isn't that our heart's cry towards kings? Yeah, you can have a king, but I I don't want him to be mine. Why? We don't like kings because they can't be trusted, that they are petty, they're fallible, they're human. History has proven that you can't trust kings. But we need to understand that this king that we are worshiping, this king is not like that. He is heavenly. He is our father. He is holy. He is God. And this God is our king. He has a mysterious kingdom. He has a kingdom that we can't fully understand. It's a kingdom that always was, that always is, and yet is not yet. You say, what did you just say, Pastor Greg? I don't get it be a good time for Siri to speak out again. Remember that? I'm sorry, I didn't understand what you said. Can you say it again? God's kingdom has always been. There's never been a time that there hasn't been the kingdom of God. But it's also not yet. It's not yet. You see, the kingdom of God is this. It's the people of God living in perfect relationship with their king and the universe ordered around that. We look around, we see the tragedy, we hear the tragedy in the news. The world is not in a perfect relationship with its God. 
earth, it says, is groaning for that relationship to come. So there's a sense in which it is not yet. It hasn't quite happened. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, what we are praying is what theologians call an eschatological prayer. That means it is a prayer that impacts our eschatology. What is eschatology, Pastor Greg? Eschatology simply means end times or the end of all things. So when I pray this prayer, it means I'm on my tippy toes. I'm looking forward, trying to glimpse what God is doing and what he's about to give birth to and what his marvelous sovereign plan is about to bring. When we pray this prayer, we need to understand what we're asking. When I pray the prayer, your kingdom come, I'm asking that every earthly kingdom come to an end. I'm asking for a new heaven. I'm asking for a new earth. I'm asking that he smash the evil and wickedness, wickedness that pervades it. I'm asking that Satan be bound, that death die, that sin is vanquished. When I pray your kingdom come, I want martyrs to judge the Caesars. I want to see fulfilled redemption of sinners to see justice carried out. When I pray your kingdom come, I want to live what I was created for, which was to praise him for eternity. When I pray your kingdom come, I'm saying I want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When I pray your kingdom come, I'm asking to see God's glory. Believer, when you pray this part of the prayer, Understand what you're asking for. For you're saying, I long. I long to see Jesus. I want his kingdom fulfilled. But understand, not only what does that mean globally, what does that mean universally, but understand that this is so personal. You're saying, I'm a citizen of this kingdom. I'm a subject of this king. I believe in the purposes of this kingdom. I long for the day that it is fulfilled. This is so countercultural. This is radical. This is subversive. But it's not only just a prayer for the future, it's a prayer for the present. You see, as believers, we live in, as citizens of a kingdom that is intentional. Yes, it has yet to be seen in all of its glory. And yes, we are longing for that day. But it is also here and now. It was brought to us through the birth of Christ. It was declared at his transfiguration. It was inaugurated at his resurrection. It is a, not a kingdom of this world, but a kingdom of the spirit. It is a kingdom that does not battle the flesh by principalities and spiritual, but battles principalities and spiritual foes we do not march like armies of the sword but as ambassadors of the king we don't go to conquer people but to make people disciples of our lord jesus christ so when you pray when i pray your kingdom come i'm asking that his kingdom comes in me I'm asking to be part of his kingdom. I, I'm telling him, I want you to be my king. I'm praying Galatians 2.20. I'm crying out saying, I want the purposes of the kingdom to be accomplished in me. I want to be different than this culture. 
I want to live a kingdom culture. So be prepared. You pray this prayer, it's costly. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And Satan took him out into the desert and was in the desert tempting him. And notice one of the temptations. He shows him the kingdoms of this world and he offers him all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow down. Some say Satan offered what he couldn't. He didn't own this. But in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we're told he is the little G God of this world. He's the little G God of this age. And he even says that he had been given the right to give these kingdoms to whoever he wanted. But Jesus refuses. And so he has the target on his back for the remainder of his life. And his refusal led to a clash. It was the clash of the cross. For my friends, on the cross is where the kingdoms of God and kingdom of Satan collide. It is the greatest event in human history as God moved to redeem a people for his glory. And he, through Jesus Christ, who unites his will with his Father, perfectly fulfills the requirements of the law and triumphs over sin, death, and the grave through grace, love, and mercy. And God won this battle decisively. And while the power of the enemy is broken and his fate secure, we live in the midst of the dying thrashing of our enemy. So when I pray this prayer, when you pray this prayer, you're saying, I am lining myself with the kingdom of God, understanding I'm declaring war on the kingdom of Satan. Your will be done as it is on earth. Your kingdom come, that phrase brings hope. Your kingdom come. And some of us become so enthralled with the hope that we take it and we try to accomplish God's kingdom in our own power. We try to smash down injustice. We try to destroy the enemy in our own power and set up the kingdom because we're going to help God. but then we miss out on God's plan of forgiveness and love and grace. So instead, he balances the hope of your kingdom come with the patience of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth in me. Have your will done in me. Have your will accomplished in me. But wouldn't it be easier just for Jesus to come? Then all the problems are solved. Can't we just live on hope? Yeah, go back to uh, that wonderful musical, Fiddler on the Roof. As you recall, at the end, the czar has decreed that they were going to lose their homes, that all must move, that all the work, that everything they had put their life into would be taken away from them and given to another. And one of the young men comes up to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, 
We've been waiting for the Messiah all our lives. Wouldn't this be a good time now for him to come? And the rabbi answers with patience. Yes, but I guess we'll have to wait for the Messiah someplace else. You see, it's understanding that as he is conforming my will to his, that as he is changing my heart, I have to be patient. So when I pray, your will, your kingdom come, I'm declaring my citizenship to heaven. But when I pray, your will be done, I'm declaring my loyalty to the king. I am praying that the king would commandeer my life and take me on an adventure of faith, a faith journey with him. It is crying out to be so lost in the beauty of his will that I willingly begin to conform my will to his because I want to see more of his beauty. I want to see more of his adventure. I want to see more of his journey. I want the thrill of being used by him and seeing his hand in my life as my will becomes like his. It also helps me understand and embrace the sovereignty of God. You see, a true king is sovereign. Sovereignty is something that either is or isn't. You're either sovereign or you're not. There's no such thing as partial sovereignty. You can't have a God who's partially sovereign in your life. He's either sovereign or he's not. And so when we look at this, when I pray, make my will like yours, your will be done. I'm asking my world to line up with his rule. I'm asking myself to line up with his rule. I'm praying for my personal rebellion to end. I am praying that this world's rebellion will end. I'm yielding to the sovereign who will make his plans happen. They may be hidden plans, but they will be plans that can't, we cannot fathom. They may be plans we don't understand, but he will bring them out and he will triumph. Because that's what it means to be sovereign. I like what Martin Luther said. He said, God can shoot a warped bow and ride a lame horse and still win the battle. Did you catch that? God is sovereign. So when I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I am saying I want your commanded will which you share with me to conform to your sovereign will which I don't understand and I don't know. I want my response to always be willing to be in line with you. Now, have you thought what that means? When I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm saying I want to embrace the way the kingdom works. Have you ever thought about the kingdom of God? It's pretty upside down. The first shall be last. The humble shall inherit the earth. Mourn. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the persecuted. It's a crazy system. You want to gain your life? Then lose it. It doesn't make sense. 
It tells me that mourners and the meek and the spiritually bankrupt are the ones who are blessed. It tells me that I find joy when I take up my cross. And if I want to escape burdens, I take on the yoke of following Jesus for his burden is light. To live in the kingdom means I focus on God and reject the idols around me and in me. I choose to live a life centered on the gospel. I love things like holiness and love. And I long for his appearing. When I embrace the kingdom, I begin to understand that my prayers are not to change the mind of God or to influence him or to get the things I want, but my prayers are to change me, to conform me to an image that he has for me. And the most radical thing about this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is that as I pray it and I believe it and I apply it, that by submitting myself to his will, I finally find my true and real self. And I finally discover what I was created to be. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a dangerous, radical prayer. It is a prayer of transformation. It's a prayer of allegiance. It's a prayer of loyalty. It's a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of patience. It is a prayer that says, I will yield to the king who is able to do whatever he wants in his time, in his way. In 1930, under Stalin, Russia got rid of the Bibles. He ordered a purge. Never was this more found in Stavropol, Russia. They literally confiscated thousands of Bibles, and believers by the thousands were rounded up and sent to the gulag, the prison, and they died there for their faith. So when Russia finally opened up to the gospel in the 1990s, a group from a group called Commission went to the town of Stravopol. They struggled trying to get Bibles shipped to this town, but every time they tried, something thwarted it. And finally, one of the old-timers said, By the way, there's a warehouse outside of town, and all the Bibles Stalin took away are are, are, are still there. So they went to the warehouse. They hired a number of people and they found out, sure enough, all the Bibles were there. And they got permission and they took the hired people to take the Bibles back to the town. They got permission to hand them out. But one of the young men who was hired, he was hostile to the gospel. He was there just for his paycheck. And he came and made comments throughout the morning. But later in the day, he disappears. One of the commission team went to find him, and when they did, weeping in the corner of this giant warehouse, they find him with a Bible, and his tears are staining the Bible. It seems he just reached and grabbed a Bible off the massive pile, and he was going to steal it for himself. He was going to take it for himself. 
and then he opened it up, and that's what tore him to pieces. It was filled with handwritten notes from his grandmother 60 years before. Notes that revealed her faith. Notes that revealed her struggle. Notes that revealed that God mattered and God was real. This was her Bible. And at that moment, God's kingdom came. At that moment, his will was done. For that young man, because of the sovereign will of God, which allowed his grandmother to lose her Bible 60 years before, so that God would place it in his hands 60 years later so that he could meet the king of the kingdom. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be our name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Realize what you're praying. It's a prayer asking God to change everything to his word. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward in the band as I pray. Father, we come to you now. Our minds are blown by the fact that when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for a future kingdom. We are praying to see you make wrong right to see you judged, to see you glorified, to see your kingdom start, to feast at the Lamb, the Supper of the Lamb. Father, we wanting to see all of that. But when we pray your kingdom come, we're asking that your kingdom comes in us and changes us and radically changes how we view the world. And we pray, Father, that we would be people who would also pray your will be done on earth in me. Change my will to reflect your will on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name.